Life Audio. Hi, I'm Cynthia Garrett, and welcome to Girl Club. We'll be right with you after these messages. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Cynthia Garrett's Girl Club. I am Cynthia, and uh, you know the place where you are. We're the place where real girls have real talk about real issues while seeking to walk in and apply real faith. And I'm going to dive right in today because we have a very special guest joining us in studio. And um, it's going to be me and Christina Reynolds and Nova Page. And before I get the girls on, um, I just want to go through a little bit about our guest today. His name is Beckett Cook, and he's the author of a, an incredible book called A Change of Affection. He's also the host of The Beckett Cook Show, where you can find on podcast platforms everywhere. And I got to tell you, you just have to check him out because he's hitting a lot of topics that are so near and dear to the way that we hit topics here. You know, I believe that everything goes back to identity. And this guest, from the second I fell in love with his testimony and and him, he's just the perfect man to be speaking into identity today. So let me tell you a little bit about Beckett. He was born and raised in Dallas, Texas. Beckett attended Jesuit College Preparatory School of Dallas, and after graduating from college, he moved to Los Angeles to pursue his dream of writing and acting, and he found a lot of success in both. In fact, I'm pretty sure we had to have been in some of the same rooms because our worlds had to have collided at some point. Beckett eventually went on to become a production designer, working with the top photographers and directors in the world on fashion shoots for magazines like Vogue. Harper's Bazaar, and for ad campaigns such as Gap, L'Oreal, L'Oreal Paris, and Nike. You know, little things like that. Anyway, finding a new sense of freedom in Los Angeles, Beckett also fully engaged in his new life as a gay man. Now, he had a series of many relationships with men throughout the next 15 years. And I'm going to not share too much more about him from that point because we're going to have him share his testimony with all of you. But I do want to go on to say that what Becca does today is spend a whole lot of his time in ministry, speaking at churches, 
universities, and conferences, helping believers and non-believers understand this issue biblically, theologically, culturally, and personally. He balances grace and truth when he's teaching on this subject of primary importance. Our sexuality and our identity are so intertwined that it really becomes like unraveling, unraveling, you know, seeds from a piece of fruit to deal with all of this. Beckett's goal is to challenge the current cultural narrative about sexuality in general and about LBGTQ ideology in particular. He's lived all over the world in major cities such as Rome, Vienna, and Tokyo. And he graduated from the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University in 2017 with a Master of Arts in Theology. Yeah, you're probably scratching your head right now going, Cynthia, what? there's got to be stuff you're leaving out. Yeah, I'm leaving out his testimony. I'm going to let him share that with you. Beckett's book, A Change of Affection, A Gay Man's Incredible Story of Redemption, was published by Thomas Nelson in 2019. Again, he is the host of the Beckett Cook Show on YouTube and all podcast platforms where he looks at the lies of the culture through a biblical lens. All right, everybody, whatever you're doing, whether you're watching on live stream or whether you're listening on podcast, it is time to pay attention to Beckett Cook, the author of A Change of Affection and host of the Beckett Cook Show. Let's get Nova and Christina in and let's bring Beckett in and let's dive into what promises to be a great conversation. Well, <laughs> there he is. Hey guys. <laughs> I, I, I know why Nova and Christina are smiling, Beckett. They're as, as excited as I am to hear you share. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Thank you for giving us some of your time and for, you know, deciding to hang out on Girls Club and, and share your knowledge with us. Yeah. Happy to be here. Good, because this is the point where I shut up. And unless <laughs> Nova and Christina have anything to say at the top? Nope. <laughs> no. We, 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 we just want to hear from Beckett. We're basically... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. So, you know, if you're listening on podcasts, imagine us now, we're couch potatoes, we've got popcorn, and cue Beckett Cook. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so where do you want me to start at the beginning? Well, I'll- Yeah, listen, obviously, you know, I was trying to do your introduction without giving away your testimony. And obviously, there was a lot that occurred between you moving to LA in 2009 and finding total freedom as a gay man. And the fact that you then end up going to Biola and getting a master's in theology. Yeah, well, yeah, a lot happened. A lot, a lot, a lot happened. So when I was, um, It all started when I was very young and I started to realize I was attracted to the same sex, which was a very disorienting, speaking of orientation, it was a very disorienting experience because I was, I I was in elementary school, I think at the time, probably fifth, sixth, seventh grade. And I really started to understand that I was attracted to the same sex. And it was, it was very bizarre because I mean, at that time, it was very much forbidden and very taboo, especially in Dallas, Texas, especially in my schools. And um, according to my family, according to even the culture at large, it was very taboo still uh, back in the in the 80s. And so um, it was a very strange feeling to because I on the outside, I was 
I was very social and I was popular and I, I went steady with girls in, in late elementary school and in high school. And in high school, it's funny, I had like three serious girlfriends in high school. And so, but on the inside, I knew that, that I had these feelings for guys. And so that was difficult to balance, but somehow I kind of pulled, <laughs> I pulled it off somehow in high school. But what, what, when it really started to ramp up is when I was a, a junior in high school, my, I went to an all boys high school and my, I ended up meeting someone who turned out, he, he became my best friend at that time. And he and I ended up coming, we, we became friends. And then one night we were out at this club in Dallas called the Stark club, which was designed by Philippe Stark, which was owned by Grace Jones and Stevie Nicks. And it was like this amazing, beautiful club. It was really cool. And and we were out one night at this club. I was 15. He was 14. I don't, you know, I don't know how we get into these clubs when you're, you know, it's like these doormen, they're just like, come on in, um, of course. And so, and they immediately put us on the guest list, like at this club, because it was really expensive to get in. Um, and so we, at the one night we came out to each other at this club. And that really, that's when things really took off in my life in terms of ex exploring my homosexuality, really, because at that point it wasn't like a gay, I wasn't like, a, it wasn't, a, it, it wasn't an identity yet. Um, right. And so we went out to gay, we started going out to gay bars, to clubs, to the whole scene. Like we, um, and, and meanwhile, like I'm going to, you know, I'm going to debutante balls with these girls and I'm going right. to, to pro, you know, all these dances and winter, winter balls with these girls. But after the, these debutante balls, I'm like <laughs> sneaking off with my friend after I drop off my date, what, you know, I sneak off with my friend and we go downtown to in Dallas to these gay bars. And, and it was just like, I remember just feeling like, you know, when I first, that first night, when I went to the star club, I remember feeling like these people get me. It was cause it was a whole mix of people. It was kind of like studio 54. It was like gay people, straight people, trans, you know, uh, drag Queens, um, trannies as they were called back in the day. Um, it was a whole mix. And, and we, I remember walking in and just feeling like, wow, like this is my world. Like this is, these people understand what I'm going through. And it was, um, it was kind of a, a major kind of epiphany for me. And, and so, and then, so we really, we really explored gay culture. I mean, to the fullest in Dallas and I experimented sexually and I, um, you know, all kinds of stuff happened, you know, and my, I was the youngest of eight kids. So my parents were sort of checked out. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't really care what they didn't really know what I was doing. And I was, I would, I would be out till five in the morning during the week, like on school nights at the start club. And they didn't really notice or care because I was getting straight A's in school. So they didn't say anything. And they were exhausted my, yeah, by the time. Were, yeah. Number eight. My, yeah. My parents were exhausted by me by the time they got to me. So um, so I had all this kind of, um, I, ha I was free to move about the cabin, <laughs> like in an airplane. I was free to move about the cabin with no seatbelt for a very long time. And they didn't, I had, I never had a curfew. Um, and so, 
I, and then in college, the same thing happened. I went away to college and I ended up becoming best friends with an, another guy in college who was going, was same sex attracted. And we came out to each other. It was a whole big deal. And again, at that time, it was still very taboo. So I wasn't out to, I was out, I wasn't out to hardly anyone. I was out to like three or four people. Yeah. Um, and then, and then after, and then in college, the same thing. Like I, we explored gay culture together. We went out to bars all the time. And, um, it was, and, a, but tough, I had, it was a, it was a tough time if I could jump in right there wasn't it? Because the eighties was, I lost friends in the eighties to the original strain of AIDS. So you had the whole stigma of AIDS then, correct? Yeah, that was a, it was a really scary time, uh, because of, because of AIDS. And, um, you know, we, I was, you know, personally, I was kind of, I was terrified of it. Uh, and so, yeah, that was the kind of like this looming thing over everyone's head too. It was a weird time. Uh, and then after college, my, my best friend and I moved to Tokyo for a year because I had gotten accepted into law school and to dental school, which is so weird. Um, don't ask why, but I, I was, I was enrolled in law school and dental school in Dallas and, um, at SMU and then Baylor dental school. And then, um, and then, but I didn't want to do either. I know you... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you went to law school, but I was just like, I can't, that seems so boring. I can't, I don't know if I can do it. Like that seems like the most boring thing to do in life. Um, and so I opted to go to Tokyo for a year to figure out my life with my best yeah. friend. We're like, let's just go to Tokyo. We'll teach English and we'll just figure out what we want to do with our lives. So that was a key turning point because that's in Tokyo is when um, homosexuality became my identity. And the way that happened was kind of eight months into my being there, my roommates, good, close, close friend from, from Texas came to visit us and he stayed with us for a week. This guy, we'll call him Adam. He stayed with us for a week. And by the time he, by the end of his stay, unbeknownst to cut like it wasn't really kind of something I expected but by the end of his day we were we had fallen in love Uh and it was it was like the first time I had felt that kind of strong strong emotion and and it was the first time and then we got into a relationship and it was the first time I had it was my first boyfriend really and so um and then that's when the floodgates open and I just came out I came out to that's when it became my identity I came out to everyone I was like this is who I am this is this is immutable it's gonna be who I am for the rest of my life I love this like this is my life and um and so when I got back from Tokyo my parent everyone in my family already knew because my sister had written me a letter while I was in Japan and asked me you know if I was gay she had her suspicions and I wrote back yes but please don't tell mom and dad. I'll tell them when I get home. But of course she told them immediately. So I was kind of glad she did that because she did all the heavy lifting for me. I didn't have to be like, I didn't have to have that awkward moment of mom, dad, please sit down. I need to tell you something. So when I got home. How were they? How were they with it? They were so amazing and lovely. My parents were very strong, strong, strong Christians. Amazing. All of my siblings are Christians. Like uh, all 10 of us 
are born again Christians. Like it's crazy. Wow. My family, God had so much grace on my family. And, um, and so, uh, my parents and my siblings all believed very clearly that homosexual behavior was sinful. It was wrong. But my parents were so gentle and kind to me because um, my my mother and I were very close. And when I so when I got back from Tokyo, I the second I think the, the night after I walked into the kitchen and she was at the kitchen table and she started crying and I knew why she was crying. I was like, Mom, what's wrong? And she said, I know you're homosexual and blah, blah, blah. And I think she was just like terrified of AIDS. And um, yeah, and. And I said, mom, it's not a big deal. Like, this is who I am. It's no big deal. Don't worry about me. And I kind of just tried to allay her fears about everything. And, um, and, and then after that, and, after, and then my dad the next day came up to me and said, hey, Beck, I, I heard you're a homosexual. And, you know, did I do anything wrong as a father? And he listed all these, you know, three things. I can't remember what they were, but he listed like, you know, a few things. And again, I, I just was like, dad, it's not your fault. This is just, this is who I am. And, um, and so that was, uh, I loved how, and then after that, those two initial conversations, they never brought it up again. They never, they never tried to like send me Bible verses or they never said, Hey Beckett, you know, the Bible says that because I was raised, I was raised in the Roman Catholic church. And so I, I was, I knew what the Bible said about homosexuality i was i was very aware of it and so there was no need for them to to bring it up again and to to kind of hit me over the head with the bible and so right they were just like loving and over the years were just always super loving i talked to my mom on the phone all the time she came to la many times to visit me uh my dad we were we were we didn't have a really close relationship, but he was very loving to me always. Like whenever he called me in LA, he would, you know, say, I love you back and blah, blah, blah. And he sent me a Bible one time I, I, years ago. But, um, and then after that, I moved to Hollywood. Mm. I, I, I was like, forget law school, forget dental school. I'm moving to Hollywood. Right. <laughs> a exactly. big mistake. Don't ever do that, please. Um, well, yeah unless yeah. you're not struggling with any issues <laughs> yeah um so i moved to la and i um to pursue writing and acting and and i had a little i had success in both but not it wasn't like a wild success it was just kind of like it was just a struggle you know and like i had independent film at sundance and this and that and and I wrote two pilots that got that sold, but didn't go to series. And then I acted in a ton of commercials and, um, but it was always like a struggle. And, and then I fell in, that's when I fell into production design. It was, it was really weird how it just kind of just happened. I just fell into it really. I had no experience in it at all. And I started doing shoots for the New York times magazine, all their fashion shoots. Cause my friend was the editor, the West coast editor so I, that's how I got into that. And, um, and that kind of really took off. So I, so I was just kind of like, okay, I guess I'm not going to do writing and acting really anymore. And, and then, you know, when I got to LA, I had this whole set of friends who were just really um, funny and hilarious and amazing and smart. And they, they all wanted, they all worked in, in the business. They all were actors, directors, producers, writers. 
and we all wanted the same things. We all wanted to make it big in Hollywood to find true love and to have extraordinary experiences. And we were doing that all the time because we were all, they were all in the business. They were all super well, well connected. They were all from Ivy league schools on the East coast. So they were super connected. And so we were invited to all the, you know, the award shows, Oscars, Emmys, Golden Globes, Grammys all the time. Like uh, like literally you're living the life. Yeah. You know, living the that- life. Quote, going unquote, to right? all the HB, the after parties, HBO parties, the Vanity Fair parties, the the Governor's Ball after the Oscars, and you know, met, meeting everyone, no, like friends with tons of people, and then you know, my friends during these times were becoming like stars overnight. Like Minnie Driver became, she was a close friend, and then she did Goodwill Hunting, and then she became like this big star, and then Mariska Hargitay, the same thing. Like she was. <laughs> We were like, I was her best gay, as she would call me. And um, and then she did, uh, and then she got booked on um, Law and Order Special Victims Unit. And that was like 23 years ago. She's still doing the show, which is crazy. Right. I drove wow. her to the audition, by the way, and like ran lines oh with my. her. She's like, can you run lines with me? I'm like, yeah. And then she books the show. So she owes oh me a lot God. of money. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I was having, and then I would, you know, I, I say this all, I like, you know, I would have these crazy experiences where I would go yeah. to Prince's house where he performed in his backyard for three hours, you know, like right. just really crazy stuff would happen all the time like that, where, right. you know, just parties, 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 every, I met everyone, did everything. So that was, that was fun for a long time. And I, a lot of shiny objects, chasing shiny objects. And, um, and, but then, you know, you start to get to a point in your life where you're just like, is that all there is to a fire? Right. Is that all there is? Like Peggy Lee would, would sing. And, uh, and so I started to feel like, the law of diminishing returns set in and I started to feel kind of like, what is this all about? Like I, I keep going to parties. I keep going to these things. I have amazing friends. I have a, you know, great career, whatever. I meet everyone like, but it's like, it's not fulfilling. And, and so I was at Paris fashion week in 2000, March of 2009 I used to go to fashion week in New York and Paris a lot. Um, And Mm -hmm. I was at uh, one of the after parties at this club called Regine in Paris. And um, you've probably been to Regine, Cynthia. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of your life I'm sitting here going, okay, we're on the other side of this, but there is that half an hour where we could scream about all of the places we've been in common. Cause it's just absolutely out of this world. You know, I mean, I, I always say like what Satan used to keep me in was like really strong super glue with all that stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like in Paris, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if you know the designer Rick Owens, he's like one of the most amazing designers yes. in the world, but like he's scary. You know, He's scary. Yeah, he's scary. His stuff is scary. But um, like, I, you know, I just randomly my friends like in my friend in Paris is like, hey, do you want to spend Bastille Day with Rick Owens and Michelle and me, his wife? Right. And I'm like, what? And so we go to Rick Owens house. They're amazing. Like palace, not palace. It's like this uh, five story French house in the in the first arrondissement. And just like I spend Bastille Day at Rick Owens' house, like it's crazy. Just stuff like that always happens. And like, hey, come to Saint Tropez with us. Um, Did it ever feel dark to you? 
even though, you know, you're in the middle of all this glamour, did you ever have those moments? Because I did where I would just inside be like, there's something though dark and not right about all of this. Yeah, there was always that element. And even even just going to like gay parties and 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 stuff, it all there was a really dark element to it. And I just felt like like why are there just ten guys in that back bedroom and what are they doing? And like it it was there was definitely a darkness. And I yeah I just but I didn't know what else to do because it was like God was never an option for me because I was gay. So like I didn't I was kind of like sort of almost trapped in this world. And I didn't, there was no way for me to break out of it because it's all I knew and there was no other option for me. So I get it. Paris Fashion Week, I go to the party, this one party and Rachel Zoe's, I'm sitting with Rachel Zoe and Roger, her husband. And, and I just felt, and everyone's there. Kanye's where everyone's at this party, Kanye West, all the, everyone from the fashion world. And, um, and I just felt this that's when it was like acute. That's when um, I just felt this super intense emptiness. Mm. And I was like, wow, what, what's going on? And, you know, I should have been having the time of my life that night, but I just felt so empty. And I just left the party by myself, got a cab back to my apartment. I rented an apartment in the Marais. And, um, and I was up all night in a panic about my life. And I'm like, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? I can't just keep going to these things. And, and, and I always, I always wanted to know the meaning of life. Um, yeah. Obviously like everyone does really, but I wanted to. And so I, but I looked for it and I was my, my, my church of choice was art were museums and the theater in in London and New York. So I would go to serious plays in New York and London. I would go to every time I was in New York or Paris or London, I would go to MoMA or the Tate or the Tate modern or the Pompidou, or I was just, I was obsessed with art. I would go to art museums all the time. And that was kind of like my religion. I just felt like, Oh, this is, this is giving me meaning. This is giving me kind of some kind of purpose. And, um, but it didn't, it, you know, ultimately didn't. And so I get back from Paris and I get busy with work in LA and um, uh, kind of forget about that night a little bit. And and then six months later, as God would have it, I'm at a coffee shop and I'm with my best friend who is gay. And uh, we are just doing our usual kind of weekend thing, hanging out the, at this coffee place in Silver Lake called Intelligentsia. And um we we just turn and we notice there's a, a group of young people at this table and there's Bibles on the table in front of them, physical Bibles. Like I had never seen a Bible in LA in my life uh, in public. And so right. that was a bizarre sight to see, like especially in Silver Lake, which is kind of a progressive part of, I mean, all of LA is progressive, but it's, Silver Lake is really progressive. And so- Yeah, totally. So um, we started my- we ended up in a conversation with him because my friend loved to kind of get into conversations with different people. And so we taught, we started talking to them and I asked them, you know, are you guys Christians? What do you, you know, what do you believe? I, I was raised Roman Catholic, but I don't really remember like what, tell me what you believe. And they, they said they were evangelical Christians. They went to a church in Hollywood and um, and they told me about their faith. They told me the gospel and they, 
I don't know if they told me the gospel explicitly, but they told me what their faith was about. And, uh, and they, and then I, of course I got to the question, what does your church believe about homosexuality? And they said, we believe it's a sin. There, there was just like, they didn't try to dodge the question or, you know, and, or bait and switch and me. And so I, I wasn't surprised at what they by what, by what they said, because I expected they were going to say that, but I was surprised by my reaction because a year before that, ten, five years, 10 years before that, I would have been like, you guys are insane. You need help. Like you're crazy. But because of that night in Paris, six months before I was open to hearing something else. I was open to hearing something different from what I had been living my whole life. So they invited me to their church the following Sunday. I, um, I said, well, I don't know if I'll go just kind of give me the address and I'll think about it. So I had a week to really think through if I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to do this or not. And I literally, I seriously went back and forth on, it. I was like, no, it's too, it's too weird. And what if nothing, what if it's, what if people find, what if my friends find out besides the friend that was with me, like what if other friends find out that I went and they're going to think I'm crazy. And, you know, it's kind of like betraying your people, you know, to go to because yeah. even couples <laughs> like for 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 gay for the for my friends, not just because I had a whole mix of friends. It wasn't just I wasn't I wasn't like in a gay ghetto, right? <laughs> I right. wasn't that kind of gay. I was like I had lots of friends that straight yeah. people and 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 so, um, but we all saw kind of evangelical Christians as the enemy. They were the yeah. enemy because yeah. they were so backwards and and you know whatever. Yeah. And they believe like this crazy book called the Bible. And so I thought about it. And the next Sunday I wake up and I'm like, and I'm like, I guess I'm going to do this. And so I get in my car and I go by myself and I show up at this high school, in a high school auditorium on sunset Boulevard. And I walk in and I hear the worship music, which was weird at first. I was like, wow, I forgot Christian music existed. That's crazy. And and then I found my seat near the front. And then the pastor comes out and he starts preaching for an hour on Romans chapter seven. And while he's preaching, every word he's saying, every sentence he's saying is resonating as truth in my mind, in my heart. And I don't know why. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, this is this is the gospel. And it was the first time I had heard and understood the gospel in my life. And it turned everything I thought religion was on its head. And so after the sermon, he uh, left the stage and there, he said, there's people on the sides of the church that can pray for you if you need prayer. And that was another moment of like, do I go over there and ask for a prayer? If I do, it could be embarrassing because the people who invited me here are probably watching me. And so, right. so I, so I reluctantly again, walked over to this guy and I'm like, Hey, I don't know what I believe, but I'm here. Yeah. And he said, well, let me pray for you. And he prayed for me and it was really powerful. And, and I was like, how does this random straight dude care about me so much? It was such a weird, it was such a, a kind of a lovely moment where he just, I could feel how much he cared about me and loved me. And so then I went back to my seat and there's another 25 minutes of worship music, right? So 
everyone is standing and singing and I sit down cause I'm just so kind of overwhelmed by the, the sermon, by the prayer, by the music, everything. I'm just like, what is happening? This is weird. And as soon as I sit down, I mean, it all went down. The Holy spirit just was like, <laughs> it, was like a, it was a road to Damascus moment. And God just like in that moment, God revealed, he took the scales fell from my eyes and God, it was just so instantaneous. And God said in my mind, he said, heaven, um, I'm God. Jesus is my son. Heaven is real. Hell is real. The Bible's true. Welcome to my kingdom. Jeez. Wow. I just started, yeah, I just started bawling and bawling and bawling. And I couldn't stop crying. I was, I was doubled over heaving. I mean, I was crying harder than I'd ever cried since I was an infant, mm-hmm. but it made sense because I was just born again in that moment. So I was a new infant in Christ. And I was so, I was crying uncontrollably. And then I was crying over the conviction of sin and also over the joy of meeting Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and knowing yeah. the meaning of life for the first time. It was like the curtains had parted and I could see the meaning of life. And I was like, whoa. Like, this is crazy. I can't believe this is all true. I can't believe that. Cause I thought the Bible was an ancient myth and I thought God wasn't real. And it was like, it was so clear. And then I got home right after the service and it happened again. Um, I got into bed to take a nap and then God was like, let me show you some more of my glory. <laughs> and I just was like, whoa, God. And I just, I started bawling again. And I jumped out of my bed and I was like, God, you have my whole life. I'm done. That's it. And I'm yours. And I knew in that moment that homosexual behavior was a sin. I knew it was wrong. I knew it was no longer my identity. I knew that it was no longer part of my life, no longer part of my future. But I didn't care because I just met Jesus Christ. And that was September 20th, 2009. Wow. <laughs> Praise God. Yeah. I got like a double dose of like God's glory in one day. It was it was amazing. It was yeah. so crazy. So how did you, you know, it's interesting because friends of mine that I've had who are gay, you, you use the word identity and their whole identity is wrapped up in. Yeah their sexuality, right? It's kind of like being Jewish. You know, Jewish people can, be- can I think, can believe in Jesus fairly easily if they could get past the fact that Judaism is like their whole lifestyle. You know, I mean, like I obviously, I, yeah. I, I spent many years in New York. So a lot of my New York Jewish friends on the Upper East Side, it's like, wait, it's our whole life. You know, it's the bar mitzvahs and the bat mitzvahs and where you go to school and, you know, it's everything. It's, you know, where you summer and blah, yeah. blah, and, and, and it's so funny because whenever I'm kind of sharing Christ with them, it's kind of like, you don't have to give up your life. You know, Jesus was a Jew, but how do you, you know, how did you, well, what do you think of your identity today? You know, when you think about yourself separate from that, how do you sort of define your identity today? Oh, well, I mean, my identity is completely in Christ. I mean, it's no longer in my identity as being based in your sexuality is a Freudian thing. So Freud in the 19th century, he, Sigmund Freud, the psycho father of psychoanalysis in Vienna, he, um, he basically said that sexuality is at the core. Your sex drives, your sex impulses are at the core of who you are. So that really the idea of identity came, can go all the way back to Sigmund Freud. And, 
Because homosexuality used to be a behavior and over the last 60 years or so, it's become an identity. It used to be a sin. Now it's a sacrament. So how did that happen? Well, you have to go, you have to look at the timeline of history and you also have to look at the influences of, of the culture and, you know, TV, it's like, we don't live in a vacuum, you know, TV shows like Ellen, Will and Grace, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, all those shows in the nineties that had gay characters and gay themes um, were so powerfully persuasive to a culture and it completely changed the culture's idea of, uh, of sexual identity and of, of homosexuality. And, um, and those shows had, and I was friends with all those guys, the guys who created Darren Starr, Max Muchnick, all those guys, oh, uh, Ryan Murphy, like all those guys who's created those shows I was friends with um, or acquaintances with at least. And yeah. so um, that, I mean, we have to, and in movies like Brokeback Mountain and, and um, all those things in Milk, uh, which my friend wrote, my friend, a dear friend of mine wrote that movie Milk and won the Oscar for it. And um but that, those, those, there's nothing more persuasive than storytelling. So it's whispering in your ear. Yeah. So that's why I always say, just you know, as believers, we're we're either, we're never in neutral. We're either giving into the world or to the word of God. Wow. It's like we're either giving into the pressure of the the lies of the world <laughs> or the or the truth of the word. So if I always say, if you've watched Netflix for an hour, you've just been lied to. So now you need to read the Bible <laughs> for an hour to yes. remember the truth, to renew your mind. Oh, um, so true. You're, that, you're right. You're right. Yeah. yeah, you're right. My husband walked in the room very early on when we were just friends. We were, you know, we were kind of just courting and I was watching Sex in the City, which I always said, and you mentioned Darren and Max, you probably knew Michael Rourke, right? The showrunner there. And these Candace Bushnell, who wrote the book Sex in the City, was a friend of mine in my New York days. And I, I remember having a very real moment because my husband looked at me and he goes, oh, I feel so sorry for you. And I said, what? And he said, your whole relationship to your sexuality is shaped by this stuff that you watch. And, and I was like, and Sex in the City was my favorite show. Like my girlfriends and I didn't miss an episode. We were the Manolo Blahnik wearers in New York. We <laughs> yes. were told. And, and you know what's kind of crazy? And I say it all the time, Beckett. We were a generation of young women who were actually told how to behave by gay men. Because it was I, gay men who ran all of those course. shows. They ran so. all the shows. And the, the characters were basically gay men in women's clothing. I mean, <sighs> those because those characters were such... That the promiscuity of those characters was very oh. much a, of a that that's from a gay man's mind. Like that, it's definitely from a gay man. So we always laughed about it because my friend, I I was obsessed with Sex in the City. We, my friends and I, we'd watch it every Sunday night, and we laughed because we're like these these, these are this gay, is all, these are gay men. men. Like this is just like they're pretending <laughs> they're pretending to be you know women, but they're not really. Um, yeah. Which and, was and, and just think about Sex in the City, like you said. I mean. Think about the incredible amount of damage that show did on an entire generation of young women, like absolute utter devastation on young women devastation because what was the primary, the primary uh, theme of that show is sex. And obviously it's in the title sex. And like, 
yeah and finding sex and and satisfying that impulse and 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 finding you know it's like let's have sex with like a hundred guys to finally get to marrying mr big like that i mean that's just like the absurdity of it is and and that and that there was some power in it because you were owning your sexuality and i i always describe it as yeah it was the power was like yeah, I'm gonna abuse me. You're not gonna abuse yeah. me. <laughs> well, but I'm still being of, abused. <laughs> I yeah, I thought I was. I always say this. I thought I was sexually liberated, you know, for t- all my life, my adult life, and but I didn't until I got saved and found Christ and knew I was in Him. I realized I was in bondage for all those years. I was I was not liberated at all. I was in bondage, and so. Um, yeah, and I don't want to ever go back to bondage. I don't want to go back to Egypt. Do you? No. So yeah, like those shows have a serious. I mean, obviously, we're seeing it now. I mean, it, it's like it's all coming home to roost. We're seeing the impact of those decades and decades of TV shows and movies that have shaped and TikTok and all these things that have shaped an entire culture and have blinded us to the truth. Satan is thrilled. He's He's laughing all the way to the bank. He loves this. He loves that. He's got everyone confused, including Christians in the church, including pastors in the church. He's got them confused about this. Right. And uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's just devastating, this whole thing. Well, you're, okay, so you're obviously, and, and Nova and Christina, feel free to jump in, but you're, you're obvious, look, you're a brilliant man. It's obvious. I mean, you're, <laughs> no, you are. And I've watched enough of you now uh, on different interviews and different, and your own podcast to know you're incredibly well-studied. You're incredibly well-read. Even your decision to go and study theology to me is, you know, you're a brilliant man living a brilliant man's life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my son is a brilliant man, you know, and, and so when he got saved, it was like, okay, well, I need to know everything about this. If I'm going to profess it, I need to know everything about it. And I love I love people like that because y- you know you you dive in and mine out the gold in the Word of God. And and I think that's part of what makes you so such a special voice for such a time as this. But do your friends from that? Well, first of all, do you still have friends from then? Did they get it, or did you lose friends? And the ones that stuck with you on the journey do they at least acknowledge that your brilliance and your talent, it's not, you're the same person. You just have found truth and whether they accept it or not, they've got to give you credit for being a very brilliant man who probably did some investigating into what he's preaching today. Yeah. They, you know, when I first told my friends, I did, it, I took like three weeks to, to sit everyone. I went out to lunch or dinner with each friend one at a time and, uh, and told them, <laughs> I was like this one friend of mine from New York, she, she wasn't back in town in LA and she came over to my apartment right here. She was actually sitting in this chair and I was sitting over there and she said, she, she, and she, I hadn't told her anything. And she's like, she's like, she used to call me thing. She's like, thing, like, tell me what's going on in your life. Like, and um, she's kind of like Candace Bush now. She writes, actually, she writes, um, she writes a tons, tons and tons of novels on, you know, sex and women and all this stuff. Um, and she's like, thing, tell me what's going on. And I was like, she's, I was like, well, I have the craziest thing to tell you. And she's like, what have you, 
are you moving? Like, did you meet a guy? I'm like, well, actually I did meet a guy, but his name is Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and so my friends were, yeah. My friends That's were, rad. My friends wow. were, um, they, they were really stunned by the news. And I thought, because it was so simple, because God made it, he had so much grace on me and he like made it so simple for me to believe. And um, that I thought, oh, I'm just going to tell my friends. And they're all, I mean, they've all known me for 20, 30 years. Like these people are going to instantly become Christians. Like as soon as I tell them. <laughs> and none, of course that didn't happen. Um, right. It's like pulling teeth. So maybe I should have been a dentist. I could have pulled the teeth. But <laughs> it's, so I, uh, I was kind of disappointed at how it was, the, the general reaction was, you know, I'm happy that you found your path, right? That's what Mariska said. I'm happy you found your path. Like, or I'm happy you found, you know, I'm happy you're happy kind of thing. And, um, and so they, they're, I try to um, kind of stay in my, I try, I try to hang on to a lot of those friends and stay connected to them as much as I could. But I was so just, immersed in my church and immersed in my new Christian life and immersed with new Christian friends that I really didn't have time that much time to see them. Right. Cause they still wanted to hang out. They still wanted me to go to dinners and stuff, but I was just like going to prayer meetings every night to church all the time to like, you know, Bible studies every night. Like I just couldn't get enough of Jesus. Like I was obsessed and reading the Bible, like go listening to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sermons every day, like just, I just obsessed. And so, mm. uh, so I, it was almost like I sort of withdrew from them in a way, but, um, but I was still connected to them, but I found it difficult because every time I would hang out with them and go to dinner parties, it was like right. the conversation could only be horizontal. It could never be vertical. Yeah. And yeah. like, you're just kind of stuck in this weird and you can't, it's almost like all you can do is just like gossip about other people. That's the only thing you can talk about because there's right. nothing else to say. Right. And so you just talk about your job or your career or your, what you're doing or talk about other people and you can't yeah. talk about the most important thing in the universe, God. And so, right. So, um, but we remained friends and, and I, I, we stood, we stayed connected until my book came out in 2019 and that's when that's when like my really close, close friends cut me off permanently Wow! because, because my book was, because it was, it's scandalous because it's one thing for them. Like it's one thing to talk about it kind of one-on-one -on -one and per, you know, to them, but to, to, to go public in such a big way and have a book out in the world about this just made it kind of untenable for them to be friends with me still. And so, and so they, um, I haven't spoken to, since the book came out, I haven't spoken to my closest, closest friends from in my whole life. And um, I don't know if that'll change, but um, yeah. So they, a few, but I, what I do know is that I know that deep down, I think they all are really curious about what happened with me and they yeah. kind of wish they had the certainty I have and the security I have in Christ and, and because they're still living in a postmodern world where there's no objective truth. Everything's subjective. Everything is kind of like, 
you know, based on your feelings and you don't know what's up or down. And, and, and so I think they're secretly envious of me that I, I do actually know the truth. There is only one truth and Jesus is the truth, the way in the life. And that I think they're they They wish they had that kind of certainty and they, but they don't. So, but I keep praying for them. Well, that's all you can do. I get yeah. it. Yeah. It, it's, you know, I think about how I used to spend my time hanging out. BC, I call it BC, my life BC before Christ, right? <laughs> and it all of, a, all of a sudden it gets hard to go hang out at the Abbey on the weekends, you know, yeah. my gay besties, <laughs> yeah. right? You know, because like, I love them, but I'm looking at them and there's that part of you, I think when you really catch fire and then you study and you know the truth of Christ, you've now asked all the questions that they have, all the excuses they have for not believing, you've already gone through it. And you're on the other side and there's this part of me that just looks at it and I'm, I'm sad. I'm desperate for them. I, there's all this stuff and it's like, wow. And, and, and it's not fulfilling for me because I can't, you know, the advice that they could give me about an issue could only go so far because our, you know, the, what we're the foundation of where we're getting our advice is so completely different, you know? I I do have a question for you because this impacted a a lot of my life in the last few years. And I'm curious for you. Well, I mean, you know, you published a book in 2019. That's kind of, yeah, that's kind of it. But as your faith grew and as your understanding of the word of God grew, did it impact the way, like everything, like the way you voted, the way you thought about politics, the way, because for me, as my faith grew, everything had to change to line up with my faith. Yeah, it's weird. It happened. It's, it's, again, it was so instantaneous. Like the, the the day after I got saved, it was so weird because I, I used to be, um, and I was friends with, I, I mean, not friends with, I would go to parties at Ariana Huffington's house. Um, you know, I was part of the whole kind of liberal crowd in LA. Same. I knew Ariana. Yeah. Very yeah. well, Ariana. Yeah. Just to hang and out her house in Brentwood. Yeah. Um, yeah. I even told her one time, I said, you're my favorite person in LA. I told, I literally told her that she's like, thank you, oh, darling. darling. Thank you, darling. <laughs> thank you, darling. Um, and um, so I was very much of a progressive in my politics uh, in B- BC. And then it was weird. Like the day after I got saved, I, it was like, I understood the fall and I understood that we're, that humans are created in the image of, of God. And so it's those two things immediately switched everything because I suddenly became pro-life because I was pro-choice before. Um, I, I suddenly became pro-life. And then once I understood the fall, because I used to, before I was a Christian, I was always like, I thought that the kind of progressive or liberal ideology of sort of like building a utopia was possible. Mm-hmm. Not in a, a Marxian way, like a Marxist way. Not because that had failed in the 20th century, obviously, but but I felt like there's some sort of way to get to a use some semblance of a utopia, and uh, and if we we could just get the right political leaders in place, if we could just get the right policies in place, it'll all work. And and then once I understood the fall, I was like, oh, like that's never possible. It's <laughs> never going to be possible. And until Christ returns, it's always going to be a, a total mess. 
like no matter who's in charge and who's in power. So it really did affect my politics. I became, uh, I became very conservative in my politics because I not because just by default, because I knew the, the, that we were creating the image of God. I knew that, you know, abortion was wrong and that, um, you know, homosexual behavior was simple. I, so that be, that automatically made me con- quote unquote conservative. And, um, and I knew that um, it's like, I, it's like Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher. She says, you know, she says in one of her speeches or one of her interviews, I became like a Thatcherite after the, I gotta say, um, she says in one of her speeches, uh, you know, uh, capitalism she says, capitalism is no free country in the... She says, every free country in the world is a capitalist country. Um, and she's, and I, so I became very much kind of conservative in that way because, because of all the... You know, because of God's revelation, I just was like, oh, this is all true. And now it realigned my whole thinking and my whole worldview and political totally. ideology. Totally. Yeah, totally. It's like, once you know that the poor you will have with you always, once you, once you, once you know that like Christ, our riches and our abundance really is only in Christ Jesus. It it does, it does change a lot for, for me, you know, it helped me to see a lot of things about the beauty of what we were going for in setting up this country. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So now, yeah, now I, you know, really, (laughs) respect the founding fathers and how they implemented uh, what they did in the federalist papers and all that. I, I, yeah, I, in the constitution, like I, I respect that now. Whereas before I was kind of suspicious of things and um, kind of rejected a lot of things, but yeah. So now that's changed very much. So I have, um, Christina, did you want to say something? I do. I have a quick question. Go for it. Um, so are you are you still currently living in LA or are you Yes, I, I live in West Hollywood in the heart of darkness. <laughs> so that's actually what I want to ask. A lot of my good friends live in that area and you know love Jesus and I will go and be with them whenever we take our, our trips down there. But it feels spiritually so oppressive. So I wanna know, like from you, you know, coming out of um, a certain lifestyle, like walking in the light. I mean, you're going hardcore for Jesus. What, how has that shift been as you're like living, still living in the midst of like your old, it's it's like you're living in the context of your old life, but you're living a completely new life. How mm. is that practically? Like, I just like walk us through that. Cause I'm, cause you seem like, so like, Jesus is the only way everything has <laughs> changed and blah, blah, blah. My friends have cut me off and yet you're still living in the heart of, part of where you used to live because usually when people change they they uproot they move go somewhere else you know like for me for example i couldn't continue to live in california afterwards i just there was no way i could sustain loving jesus but you're still living there and you have Mm. so much solidarity so can you let us into that process and that shift and how do you maintain that fire right now yeah well i mean i actually enjoy being a fish out of water um and so I, it doesn't bother. I, I'm, I go everywhere. I go to Beverly Hills juice almost every day, which is, you know, I don't know if you, Beverly Hills juice is on Beverly Boulevard. It's two blocks for me. It's the best. It's the original juice place in the world. And, um, 
from the seventies or maybe sixties. But, um, yeah, but I, uh, I tell everyone and anyone I go to air one. I tell everyone the gospel. Like I literally am, like I've, I've given Bibles to people at, at Beverly Hills juice. I've given them my book. I've given people at air one or at, wherever I go. I'm just like, I talk to everyone about it because it comes up so easily. Cause people will say like, I'll be at the checkout counter and the, and they'll say, oh, what did you do? How was your weekend? And I'll like, and I'll just say, oh, yeah, it was amazing. I um, went to church on Sunday and blah, blah, blah. And then that just opens the door. And then I just end up telling them my story. <laughs> <laughs> and they're just like stunned by it. And, uh, but I don't, so, so being, the two things, being in LA and being where, living where I live, the culture doesn't affect me in terms of my walk with the Lord at all. Yeah. It doesn't affect because, because I know it's all lies. Like I, so it doesn't, I, there's no like kind of danger of me still being here in terms of my walk, my faithful walk with the Lord. There, there's no, I mean, I say that and Satan's like, wait a minute. Um, <laughs> so I rebuke Satan right now, but, but there's uh, so there's not that it's not about that. It's uh, but on the flip side, is I really enjoy being here because I love, I love that you, it's just kind of like, it's a mission, it's a mission field. It's a mission field. And, and and there's so many people who just need to hear about Jesus. And I, and I'm more than happy to, (laughs) I'm more than happy to tell them about it. So God gave you a grace for it. That's, you know, right. Like it's interesting that you, cause Christina, I think, it's so amazing. God so knows each of us, like, right? Like he knows each of his kids, what we can handle, what we can't handle. And he gives us a grace for different situations because like, I couldn't have done it in the beginning either. I mean, you know, we, I moved first to Westlake village and Calabasas, then to Kansas. I mean, like my change, like took me in, you know, out in a lot of ways. I don't know that I could have lived in it. Plus, you know, I went through the whole 90s Coke scene and, um, you know, I, I, I definitely could not have been around it, you know, and, and yeah. you know, I'm a different person now 20 years later than then. But I, I do get what Christina is saying and I get what you're saying, Beckett. And I think it's beautiful because as you were talking, I was like, oh, you've got the grace that my brother has. Like, you know, Lenny has been celibate you know, since he got radically saved at 16, you know, now he got married and had a child and, you know, he fell off the bike a few times, but for the most part as a rock star with access to everything surrounded by beautiful women, literally throwing their clothing (laughs) at him, he's kept a purity about him. And he's, I mean, it's, I mean, we were talking about it recently. It's been, he's like, girl, it's like over a decade. And, and, you know, and I was like, I know how much you love women. So how? That's amazing. He, By the way, when I read your book, I, I was so, I didn't even know that he was a Christian. I was like shocked. And I was so excited that he yeah. is a Christian. I'm like, yeah, praise God. He, like, that's guys, amazing. He, he would love you, by the way. Oh, yeah, I mean, love, that's amazing. You. I'm so yeah. glad he's, he's in the kingdom of God. 
Yeah, he is. He can jam out in heaven for all of eternity. Yeah, yes! he is. He is. Yes, he is. He is. If we need to, and and he's always like, I, you know, I want to be bolder, but my way is a little different. You know, like, yeah. I mean, by the way, the song "Are You Gonna Go My Way." Now, listen to it again, knowing that he's a believer, and you'll know what the song is about. Okay. Yeah. Uh, are you are uh, are you gonna go my way? I am the chosen. I'm the one. I came to save the day, and I won't leave until I'm done. Yeah, it's all. Praise it's God. about. It's that's about amazing. Jesus. Yeah, I, didn't right. know. I didn't know any of this. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, he write, He has written a lot of songs and Jesus is the context, but people don't, they don't know. They don't get it because they're not thinking in that frequency per se, right? Yeah. When they, yeah. when they listen to him, but yeah, it, it, you have been given a grace for where you are for sure. Just like he was given a grace to not be a total man whore. I mean, yeah. you know. <laughs> I mean, if they, listen, if the shoes, that's why God made him the rock star and not me. I might've lost my mind because I was looking for love in men. I was looking to fix the sexual abuse I lived through. I was looking to fix things with my dad, you know? And so I was always looking in relationships when I was a young girl. And I think God knows what will take us out and, and, and what, what will, you know, what we can handle. Exactly. What's that verse? God, God will um, give you a way of escape. He something he won't give you more than you can handle. I can't remember the verse. No, no. Oh, in the well, it's basically saying that in the time of your testing, he's already prepared a way out for you. And I cannot believe that you actually went there because that is the scripture that the Lord gave me, racing through Paris. In Prodigal Daughter, my testimony, uh, uh, going into Italy with the crazy man I was married to that I would end up going to prison with and, 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 and getting saved in a prison cell with. And he dropped that scripture on me. And it all of a sudden, the peace of God came over me in this abusive moment in time where he was trying to kill me and throw me out of the car. And I knew that he'd already prepared a way out for me of this mess that I was in that I really created myself in so many ways, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and um, the other one that you often quote is I count at the cost and I count it all as loss for the excellency yeah. of knowing Christ. Yeah. I count everything one. is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, because I do, I can't like, you know, uh, the, one of the reasons being celibate, for me is not difficult is um, because I see, I have a, I have more of an eternal person. I have an eternal perspective on life. So I know this life is two seconds long compared to eternity. So I count everything as lost compared to, you know, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And, and I know that, this the, like Paul in in First Corinthians seven, he says it's better to be single. Paul's like, you know, I wish everyone were like me. You know, I, I wish everyone were single like I am because you have more time to devote to the Lord and to the kingdom of God. Because when you're married, your time is divided, etc. He goes through that whole thing. But to me, it doesn't matter whether I'm married or single. It's it's all the same to me because I'm here for a very brief time especially because i I didn't get saved till i was 42 so i'm here for a very brief time you know who knows when i'll go home to glory hopefully tonight that would be fun um (laughs) and uh you look so so young and so i'm 55 so um 
Don't look at. So I thank you. So I, I don't being single, being sell. This whole idea of like I'm celibate and I, you know, woe is me. My life is difficult. That to me, that's such a a, a foreign idea. I mean, to the gospel and to to Paul and to 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 Jesus who was single. Like it, it's like this life isn't about kind of like having our own comfort and satisfaction. It's about the kingdom. It's about God. It's about him. And it's about spreading the gospel. It's about the great commission. And so the, the stars, I love the stars. <laughs> and so we um, like this whole kind of navel gazing, you know, of, of even Christians of like, you know, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm so sad because I don't have a husband or a wife and like my life is terrible. It's like, what? what are you talking about? You're in the kingdom of God. Are you kidding me? You have, you're immortal. You have eternal life and you're, you're complaining. Like how can you possibly complain about your life? You have eternal life wow. in with Christ in like, I don't even, I can't even talk to you right now. because you need like, to huge. speak to a generation of people yes. who are all they want is I've been celibate. I've been waiting for God to bring my husband and he can't, this is literally the conversation we had Monday. No, remember? Yeah. Like, and women who are really, they're suffering because God hasn't brought them a spouse yet. Your perspective is so incredible. It transcends <sighs> straight gay. You just went right to the Part of the matter, which is in the yeah. throne room, yeah. not in our yeah. flesh. Yeah. Exactly. Do you know what you have? Do you know what you have? I love it, Becca. I, can I ask a super practical question? Yeah. Um, just, you know, because I, 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 I sit with a lot of different moms. You were talking about this living in this postmodern world where there is no, there is no wrong, right? It's just whatever you want. Your truth is your truth and that's fine. And so love even love. just sitting, yeah, love is love. But even just sitting with some uh, women in my life and them saying, well, Nova, like, who are, who are we to say, you know, who you can love? And I just, you know, I know, I mean, I shared some thoughts, but I'm just wondering if, if someone were to say that to you, Beckett, what is your response to those questions? Because I think Christians, like even you mentioned just in Christ and dumb pastors and they don't want to offend. They don't want to say, you know, that is wrong. And, and you're very clear on your stance, but how do you as a Christian gently answer that mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, I mean, satisfy the, the question. Yeah. I mean, who, the question, like, who are you to say it's, it's like, well, I'm a child of God because I've, I've been brought into his kingdom and I, um, and I know, I believe in the inerrancy and the authority of scripture. And so that's, that's how I can say that. And, um, you know, it's not, Jesus said, um, there's so many things I could talk about right now, but Jesus said, I, you know, this isn't very comforting. This is, I'm going to get to the comforting thing in a minute, but Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And he said, Mm. children are going to be pitted. Basically, you know, fathers and sons are going to be pitted against each other, mother and daughter, Mm. brother and sister, because he knew that following because following Christ is going to create division. Yeah. When you actually follow Christ and you are faithful biblically to his word Mm. and to his the truth, 
it's going to create division. So that's where you have to begin. You have to begin with knowing that, that just being a Christian in itself is going to cause division. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are you who are persecuted for my namesake. Your reward is great in heaven. And, and blessed are you who, you know, are reviled for my name. And he, cause he knows we're going to be reviled for his name and we're going to be persecuted. And, but guess what? Our reward is great in heaven, which is amazing. And our and reward, by the way, eternal rewards are eternal. So that's a big deal. Um, yeah. I don't know if yeah. you know about that, but we're, like, we're, like, like the G5 belongs to you forever. Yeah. It belongs <laughs> to you forever. Right. Praise God. So, um, and so the, the other thing I would say is, you know, for, for parents, you know, whose kids come out, come out to them or, or friends or mm-hmm. siblings or whatever, it's like, my parent, my family was the best example. They were just like such great example. I, my sister-in-law, I talk about this in my book. She is, is an evangelical Christian and she, I knew where she stood on this issue. I, I absolutely knew where she stood, but over the years, over 20 years, we were close friends. Like every time I would go home to Dallas for the holidays, we would hang out. She would talk about God. I would talk about guys, but she, she just prayed for me for 20 years and she actually prayed acts 26, 18, which I'll read because it's, it's so good. Um, and she said, this is what it says. This is when Paul is in front of King Agrippa and he's kind of telling King Agrippa what his, what God sent him to do and to preach to the Gentiles. Mm. And he says, um, he says 26, 18, that he's, his purpose is to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and the power from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of, sin, of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Hmm. Um, and what he means is justified by faith in me. And that, that's what sanctified means in, the, in that context. But uh, she prayed that over me. But, but the thing is, um, we to be loving. So Jesus was the master at balancing grace and truth. If you know, if you watch him in the gospels, if you watch what he does, what he says, he's just a master at it, but he never leaves people in their sin. He always calls them to repentance. And it's, and I forgot who said this, but he said uh, this kind of quote that's, I love is, um, Jesus. What is it now? I can't remember. Um, when Jesus, Jesus enter, you know, dined with tax collectors and prostitutes, it was they who were changed, not him. So he never changed his, him himself to, to make them, you know, he, he never caved to, to the culture basically. Um, and so, uh, we just have to, we have to balance that. And so it's, it seems unloving to tell people the truth. To, to say like, you know, Hey, this is wrong. This is sinful, but it's actually the most loving thing you can do because mm-hmm. you're, 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 you're potentially saving a person from going down a road of eternal destruction and eternal torment. So, so that is the most loving thing you can say to somebody. And what's very unloving is to affirm sin in someone's life and to say, Amen. Oh, okay. like it's Amen. wow. Wow. So good. 
uh, it's Charles Finney, you know, Finney's uh, book lessons in revival uh, is so convicting to me because he basically says the same thing Beckett, like, you know, how can you say you love your brother or your sister and watch them essentially make a choice that's going to take them to hell? Yeah. You know, and, and it's, it sounds so harsh, but it's true. And I, and and he always like there's an urgency that we should have about the gospel, especially today when we're looking at so much confusion and young people who are so desperately searching for answers. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I you know when I when I saw the film Jesus Revolution recently, I mean I cried like like I wept through the whole movie because I kept looking at the generation of hippies in the '60s and '70s. And how they were all, they hated government, they hated the wars, they they hated division, they hated racism, they didn't want to be separated, they wanted love and peace. And, and so they were looking everywhere to have peace and love. And so it was free sex, free drugs, whatever would make them, you know, feel like they were disconnected from the horrible reality they were in and feel better and go to a different place of nirvana. And it's interesting because I know why the Jesus movement spread like wildfire, Mm -hmm. because when Jesus broke in and they experienced God, the love of God, it was, and I know this, like I tried sex, drugs, and rock and roll to feel love and to feel good. And, you know, as was the old gospel, uh, you know, women on, on pulpits in black evangelical churches saying, can't nobody do me like Jesus, you know? <laughs> like, like nothing. There's nothing that compares. There is no high. You know? it's yeah. Like- <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting, uh, Cynthia Beckett, uh, you know, as somebody who, you know, I've been such an observer now of just he- listening to you, Beckett, um, hearing your story. Um, probably our audience is sitting back, you know, thinking the same thing, because maybe people would assume, you know, he's going to tell us how, how to not be gay and how to not do this and the 10 steps and the things. And all I have heard from you is I fell in love with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And because I was so focused on Jesus, Jesus became the thing. And he actually changed my entire life. And I, I feel so like, you, I feel like you are spurring me on personally to love and good works and falling in love with Jesus. Um, it, you, I feel like you, you are just um, totally. an incredible Praise man. God. Yeah, well, I, I, this I, reminds I, me of, of Hebrews, and when when you know, in the book of Hebrews is all about this. Uh, it's kind of comparing Jesus to the angels. Jesus is Jesus is better than the angels. He's better. He's the better sacrifice. He's yes. better. And that's how I feel. It's like Jesus is better than everything else. Like he's, wow. he's better yes. than anything this world has to offer yes. and stars, stars, stars. He has, he's way better than anything this world has to offer. So yeah, I mean, everything else kind of pales in comparison and falls by the wayside because it's like, yeah, you know, I have, I always say this, I have like this permanent layer of joy in my, in my like gut. You- like it's like a rock you that, do. no matter what my circumstances are. Cause I, you know, it's like life is stressful. We all know this. It's not easy, mm-hmm. not easy being me mm-hmm. or you. Yeah. Um, and there's stressful moments like a lot. And so, but it doesn't matter because I, I have this joy that's 
impenetrable. It's always there, even when I'm struggling, even when I'm stressed out. It's just always there. And whereas before I was a Christian BC, I you know, I was on this roller coaster all the time. And it was always like every, my, my happiness or my joy was based on my circumstances and whether I was in a relationship or not with a guy or whether my job was going well. And I was just, it was just this constant uh, roller coaster that was exhausting. And now it's just like, I feel like I'm, I'm steady on the rock of Christ. Like that's it. No, no matter what happens. Yeah. It's, it's almost like, you know, God, what you say is, it's so true. There was such a vulnerability, you know, it was always about, it was always about someone else to make sure that you're happy and fulfilled. And, and, but yet you were never going to be happy or fulfilled because someone else could never do that, you know? And, and I, and I knew it, you know, from relationship to relationship, from job to job. I mean, there, there came a point, Beckett, I was, I remember standing on a red carpet during the Oscars and, Meryl Streep was walking up and Billy Bush was at one end of the carpet and I was at another. And then, um, oh my gosh, I can't even, I, oh, I can't, Vanessa, who, uh, uh, Manila formerly, now she's married to Nick Lachey. But anyway, um, and we were like, you know, all over the carpet and Meryl Streep is walking up and the producer's in my ear and he says, Cynthia, make sure you, a- make sure you ask her what she's wearing. And I go, no. And he goes, he goes, what? I go, I don't, you know me. I don't care what she's wearing. Have Billy ask that. That is such a vapid question. I'm the girl that wants to know about her religion and her politics. Please don't make me ask that question. <laughs> and all of a sudden it hit me like, oh, I'm, I, I, I can't do this anymore because yeah. I don't care about these vapid, shallow pursuits. And then all of a sudden, everyone who was in pursuit of them and a lot of, people whom I loved, I started looking at them like, you're really shallow. I love you, but like, really? Yeah. And then, you know, then you get older and then you're like looking at them and you're going, you're 60. What's wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't want to be that person. I didn't want to be that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Hmm. It is a shallow life if you don't have Christ. It is. It's just by definition it is. Yeah. Uh, am I okay to ask another question? Because totally. yeah. I know, so I know we have to probably wrap up at some point. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, For those of you listening, I'll do a quick uh, ID check in. You, you're, you know, you're with Girl Club and we've decided to run long today because guess what? We can, and we have Beckett Cook with us. And so, you know, we just must. So, yeah. <laughs> Take the floor, <laughs> Nova. No, I, you know, because I, I do have some family members that are, you know, um, they're living out a gay lifestyle. And um, I would say even several people that I have met and known maybe have experienced God in some way. And even, you know, they've, they've been like, yeah, I I think that's great. And then they, they fall back. What, what, what do we, what is the next step? Like, how do we move forward with that? Even somebody who said they've had an experience, like they may have not had an experience like you've had Beckett Mm -hmm. um, with God just totally. I mean, your descriptive, your description of, of how God just met you is so intensely beautiful. What about the person that says I've not had an experience like that? What do, what do I do with that? Yeah. 
Well, and not every, yeah. And not every experience is, is going to be like that, that, that powerful or that strong, right. but, um, but it's not about the experience really. It's about the truth of, of God's word and the truth of, of God, of Christ, of what he did on the cross. And that's what, that's what you have to go back to because our, our experiences, yeah. yeah, I mean, they're great, but they, they, they can be deceiving and they can also mm-hmm. be, um, they can be fleeting and, and we don't want to just simply rely on an experience. We have to, we, we ha- I mean, we can only stand really truly on the word of God. Like we have to, s- we have, to have that as our foundation or as, as Christ as our foundation. And so, um, I would say, you know, for people, are you saying like you're saying people that, you know, have had an experience, but they are falling away or what's. Yeah. There's, you know, I have family members who grew up in Christian homes and, and, and I love you, the testimony of your family, how they loved you so well, but you know, these, uh, these other, you know, people that I met and family members too. And I I don't want to say too much. Um, but you know, I think they, they have, probably been embittered by some of the way they've been treated by Christians and how to lovingly just continue to, obviously I'm going to pray for them, but like give them truth in love. Like, and and you touched on that. Um, I mean, basically Becca, you answered the question. It's like, Hey, the bottom line is the truth of the word of God. And you're right. We can't, no matter what, we can't just depend on our, on our experiences because, you know, our feelings are fleeting, but the, the word the Lord stands forever. So but. Yeah. And if you, if people have been hurt by, you know, other Christians or in the church or whatever, it's like, yeah, that's, that's, um, that's terrible. But also Christians, when we get saved, we don't become instantly perfect. That's what the, <laughs> that's kind of the misapprehension of the world. They think that, oh, if a Christian messes up, then, oh, then Christ isn't real. Look how, what a hypocrite. It's like, no, we, we are we're going through a lifetime of sanctification and that that takes a lifetime and we're going to mess up as Christians and we're going to make mistakes. We're going to do things that are hurtful to others. And we're going to like, and that's, that's part of the sanctification process, but that's why we can't look to, we ultimately have to look to Christ because he lived the perfect life and he died for us. And that, so he's the one we really have to look to. We can't, we can't, you know, say the, the church hurt us, hurt us, or we can say that, but um, don't, I, I would just urge people not to let that keep them from a relationship with Christ, you know, yeah. and to, to, to keep going back and, and to forgive. I mean, we can't, one of the, the worst things to do is to just not forgive. I mean, Jesus, Peter asked Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive? And he's like, 70 times seven. Um, it's like, we, because if that just grows into bitterness and we, we just have to forgive people. And we, and that, that's such a, a big part of the Christian life is forgiveness. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So I guess as we kind of get down to the end, I, I, I have a quick question for you about, so there's a whole movement now of, uh, we'll call it progressive Christians, progressive churches, pastors. I mean, I have a, I have a very close friend from childhood. He he is gay. He came out of the lifestyle, married a woman, had a child. 
um, and then got diagnosed with the original 80 strain of AIDS three, what, 20 some odd years later. And he and his wife divorced. Um, and he's a good, great father. He's a good friend, but he's now gone back to the lifestyle. He's with a man who is a priest of sorts. And so I didn't know that that existed until the last, you know, five, 10 years of my life that this whole sort of progressive movement of churches that don't deal with homosexuality as a sin. Um, and, and I, because I have so many gay friends that I love, you know, one of the things I appreciated so much about your testimony was you said, I just love that they told me the truth when I ran mm -hmm. into these young kids and, and, and they were like, you said, what do you believe? Well, we believe that homosexuality is a sin. Well, you know, it's, it is awkward to say that because you love these people, you know, you love these people. Then again, as we talked about, you love these people, but if you really love them, what does love look like? Would God leave us drowning in something that he doesn't want us drowning in? And so if in fact God doesn't want you drowning in homosexuality, no, love wouldn't leave you there. But then herein comes the rub, so to speak, is that the progressive kind of believer is making it all okay. And mm -hmm. how do you deal with that? What do we say? How do we witness? How do we, how are we to be, you know, strong and loving and uncompromised about the truth while also being a light that draws people in and doesn't repulse people? Um, I'm trying to find this verse. Uh, in Second Timothy, where is it? Come on, Second Timothy four. Okay. Uh, four three. Well, I mean, the yeah, I mean, the New Testament warns us constantly of of false teachers coming in. Of so progressive progressive churches. I mean, it's just false teaching. It's they're false teachers, and so. First, second Timothy four says for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So that's, I mean, the Bible, this, this is like 2000 years old. Like we, we know that this is happening and it's been happening forever since, right. uh, since Jesus came. Right. And so progressive churches are, are simply, false churches they're just false te they're false teachers and um and i would run from those churches i actually <clears throat> when i first got well not like a, a couple years after i was saved i i started hearing about these kind of gay churches and i was like what i wonder what they talk about at these churches like what are the sermons like right. so i went online and i listened to a sermon from a church in pasadena a gay quote-unquote gay church and I mean, I, I listened to two of their sermons and I was like, what? It right. made no sense. It was like bizarre, bizarre stuff. And just like talking about the light and the lights within you. And this is in the, mm. I was like, what are they even talking? Like nothing is truth. Nothing is from the Bible. Like barely, they would say you a couple things. Um, so we have to be as, as believers, we have to be aware of, we have to be, we have to read second Timothy and be aware that false teachers are going to come and, and, um, and they're going to try to convince us of these things. And so, I mean, this has been going on for a long time and, um, and, you know, 
what was the second part about what was about how to be loving? Well, how 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 do we remain loving but also ready to you know speak the truth in love? Because it's the truth in love, right? We've got to know how to speak the truth in love. And that that's where, you know, I'm always finding myself walking that line of, you know, stay on the wall, build the faith, build the faith. You know, um, I mean, l- listen, I mean, a few Christmases ago, you know, e- every year I go to my former agent's home and, and he and his husband, you know, have a, their Christmas party. And, you know, and one year he's like, we have our own pastor and we would love Cynthia to pray. And so I'm praying and it's like sit down dinner and, you know, predominantly gay couples and gay people. And so I pray in Jesus name, but it, it wasn't, it was not lost on me. Like, wow, God, you know, number one, I may be the only Jesus that they see, mm-hmm. you know, so I felt blessed and honored, you know, to be asked or that they, they didn't feel judged or condemned by me. But then there's the flip side of my faith that is also aware that, but I'm, but I'm not here to namby pamby down the truth yeah. of the gospel. Well, that happened to me. I went, so I was invited to this dinner party in Malibu. This was like, I don't know, seven years, eight, nine years ago. Um, and the host of the the party is, was is gay. And he um, has this, he has multiple homes in Malibu, but this is a beautiful, beautiful home. And he invited us, me and a, a friend over for dinner. That This guy that I went to church with, who was also ex-gay. <laughs> I don't like that term, ex-gay, but whatever. This short shorthand. Um, so we went over to this guy's house for dinner because he, he was my, the guy, my friend was his employee. Um, okay. So we went to his house for dinner. And there's like 10 people around the dinner table. And right as we're just starting dinner, the host, who's gay, tells everyone, hey, this is Beckett. And Beckett, why don't you tell your story to everyone? And I'm like, and no one there is a believer, right? Like half of them are gay. And I'm just like, whoa. So I was put on the spot. So I'm like, okay. So in my book, I talk about this story because I'm like, I choke on my fennel salad. And I'm like, um. (laughs) So I so I tell them I tell them my story. They're all kind of like super intrigued and interested until I get to the part about not being gay anymore. And they start they're like, oh well, wait, that's crazy. You can't, oh my gosh, like blah 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 blah. And um it started to get kind of you know wild. And I was like, and so I finally I was just like, wait a minute, guys, guys, just listen to me. I, the only reason I'm here tonight, I have midterms in seminary tomorrow. Like I have, I'm super stressed. I have midterms. I drove 45 minutes out here tonight. And the only reason I did that is because not to win a debate. The only reason I did that is because I love you. That's it. I have no other agenda. And they immediately just like the room just calmed down and they were like, Oh, and so I think that's how like, that's how Jesus did it in the gospels. I mean, he loved people and he was, but he, he, but he was, he never compromised his, obviously he didn't compromise his convictions. And, 
And, you know, I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're in, in, uh, when they're in exile in Babylon and we're as Christians, we're in exile in this world. And they were willing to go into a fiery furnace rather than compromise God's word, and, mm. but bow down to the golden statue, which is our culture. Like, we have to be willing to go into a fiery furnace rather than bow down to the lies of this culture. And even if it means losing our jobs, lo- losing our friends, losing our mm-hmm. stars, <laughs> losing our whatever, because that God, it's like he has to be supreme above everything else. Like absolutely supreme. Amen. So Amen. Yeah, we, we can be loving. We have to be loving and we have to be truthful at the same time. It's a hard balance to always. Yeah. But we just we got it. We have to pray for wisdom whenever we go into situations. When I go to parties, when I go to when I used to go on set all the time, I would pray beforehand. and I'd be like, God. Give me wisdom. Give me, help me, lead me to the person you want me to talk to today, you know, at Paris Hilton's house or whatever. And, and it did. And every time it happened, like every single time God would lead me to somebody and I would talk to them. Amen. Amen. You are so cool, Beckett. I, I, I just, uh, sorry. I don't know what else to say. I'm like, you were just such a radically, radically just cool man. I I, I love how you love Jesus. I love how you bring it back to God's word. I yeah. am so encouraged by you. Yep. I thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank yeah. You. Thank you. It's like the perfect, the perfect, the perfect endpoint. You know. Thank you because I want to take you everywhere. By the way, like I have a list of people I want you to meet. They all need your testimony. They're just waiting for you. I'm like the mama who needs fresh arms, you know, and, and the next time when, when I'm in California, um, Nova, you have to go, Beckett and I are going to hang. So you got to come. Totally gonna hang. You gotta I'm come inviting away. myself. I'm in San Diego. Yeah, come yeah. hang well, out with me in San Diego. <laughs> or, or you're going to have to tell Ricky, you need a day and, and, and we're going to go hang in West Hollywood with Beckett. And, uh, and the other thing is, so when we do our first girl club conference, which I know God is going to have that happen. Beckett, you have to be like the guy that speaks at the conference because you're, <laughs> you're, like, you're like, I'm literally like, I'm literally taking this podcast and sending it to pastors I know all over the place uh, with yes. these massive, who do these massive conferences. And I'm like, you need to have him speak because no one is ripping the veil off the, oh, we don't want to talk about that conversation and that's what Mm. well that's what nova christina and i and christina boudreau who wasn't with us today um who struggled with this issue and came out of the lifestyle so i honestly cannot believe she's not Mm. with us today she had another Mm. um uh preaching engagement but um yeah thank you for what you do because it's our heart well i mean it's it's not me really it's god because god called me to this and you know, if I, this is the thing, if I, if I didn't obey God, if I didn't obey God, when he called me to seminary, if I didn't obey God, when he called me to this ministry, I would be in the belly of a very large fish right now. So I don't want to be, I don't want to be in a fish like Jonah. I want to be, I just want to be obedient to God. So it's all about him. You know, it's not about me. This is his grace. As you said, it's his grace. Totally. Totally. Well, you guys, um, I think that is it for Girl Club this week. But uh, Beckett Cook, that's who you've been listening to. 
He's the host of the Beckett Cook Show on YouTube and all podcast platforms. And Beckett is taking an honest and well-needed look at the lies that our culture sells us all through a biblical lens. And you know, that's our heart around here. Uh, He is the author of the incredibly selling book, A Change of Affection. Pick up a copy, buy 10 copies, send it to 10 friends. <laughs> I am. Uh, I ordered ordered it en masse because, um, and I'm not joking. There are a few friends that I believe, you know, sometimes someone is called to bring a certain message. And I have some people in my life, um, including one that I love very, very much, um, and they need your message. And um, I'm so grateful to you for coming on. Beckett. And thank you for getting a wacky, crazy email from a girl saying, you know, I really love your show. Would you come on? And and like being so ready and so able and so aware. And we feel like we have a new friend here at Girl Club. Anytime you need anything to promote, whatever you have, um, you have some sisters in Christ that want to do this thing with you. Thank you guys. I appreciate it. It was so fun to be on the show. Great. Uh, Well, Nova, I love you. Christina has already left the studio to go deal with her kids. Uh, From all of us to all of you listening and watching, thank you to Life Audio for hosting us. And guys, like, subscribe, and share. And make sure you go over and check out the Beckett Cook Show. It's an amazing podcast. Beckett, what's your email? What's your um, website? Beckettcook.com. Beckettcook.com. All right, I'm Cynthia Garrett with Beckett Cook and Nova Smith. We're out. Peace out, guys. We'll see you next time. Thank you, guys. No matter what you're going through, you are not alone. Sis, if you've experienced pain in your father-daughter relationship, I want you to know that you are loved and seen. I'm Kia Stevens, host of the Hope for Women with Father Wounds podcast, and I created my show to help you exchange your father wounds for the love of God the Father. Join me for encouragement, wisdom, and scripture. Just search Hope for Women with Father Wounds on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcast.